what a wonderful day we are having already. It's great to be back with you after a, a week or so away. It's our supreme pleasure to open the Word and study together. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 18. And there we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, establishing the theme today of one of Jesus' magnificent messages. Chapter 18 of Matthew is one of these wonderful messages that Jesus gives in the gospel, and you're going to be familiar with many, if you've been around church much, you'll be familiar with many of the things that Jesus says here. Unfortunately, oftentimes those things that we read in this chapter have been pulled out of context, and we don't understand them in the context in which Jesus said them. The theme of this entire chapter is children, but not children's ministry, not a message for children, though it would certainly include believing children. Rather, Jesus takes a child. Mark tells us that he takes him in his arms, so you can imagine he asks for a child. The child comes and sits on his lap. And Jesus, ha- having this child in his lap the entire chapter, teaches his disciples an analogy. The analogy is all of Christians as children. I'm convinced this whole chapter is a teaching that Jesus made all at once at one time, and the entire thing happened with that child sitting on his lap as an illustration of Christians as children. The first few of these verses set the analogy. Jesus speaks to them, takes the child, and puts them on his lap and gives them the basis. That's verses 1 to 4. That's what we're going to be looking at today. That's why I've entitled today's message, Christians as Children, Part 1, Enter as a Child. That's the standard by which we become children of God. We enter the kingdom as children. Then he speaks of the care and kindness for one another as fellow believers, fellow children of God. That's verses 5 to 14. We'll consider that next time, Lord willing. And then in 15, down to the end of the chapter, we have instructions on how to treat one another when there's sin between one another. How do we... What do we do when there's sin? We respond with protection, with discipline, with forgiveness. Jesus is going to teach us as we live with one another, fellow children of God. What's amazing about this passage is that this is the first place in the New Testament that we are introduced to the idea of the, that Christians will gather together in small local groups called churches. In fact, if you read the New Testament, what you might be surprised to know is that only once or twice does the Bible speak of the church in terms of the universal church or the invisible church, which does exist, but almost every time the New Testament talks about church, it's talking about a local group of believers, much like our own, that have covenanted with one another, that live with one another, that interact with one another. And here Jesus is setting the standard of how we are to operate among Believers inside a church. Well, we are to operate as children. And this is the theme of the chapter. So let me read to you these first four verses of Matthew 18. You can follow along as I read aloud. Again, this is the theme of the entire chapter. And I think this will help us understand all those verses that you've probably heard that may be detached and pulled out of context from time to time. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Many of you in our church family or in the military, and you know in the military there are ranks and privileges. You must organize uh, that uh, society in terms of ranks and privileges, and there are those who have authority and some who have less authority and those who have to answer to others. And it's really in the military there's not much uh, hiding the fact that there are ranks and privileges and there's discussion about how to make the next rank rank and when you can get to the next part. And uh, yes, there's some circumspection and you have to be a little bit circumspect about uh, salaries and things like that, but it's a pretty open discussion. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, we look at the disciples in moments like this when they talk about who's the greatest. We look at them, we sort of mock them. But I, I think it was very natural. And I think it was natural for them to think of this kingdom and to think of authority. And, of course, Jesus would be right on the top. And for them to sort of organize, uh, who's going to be the next in line? Who's going to sit at his right hand and at his left hand? And who's going to carry out his orders? And who's going to command the other people to do other things? How is this going to be organized? Now, on top of that, the, these, many of the disciples were brothers. And so there would have been competition from the beginning of their lives with one another. It's very natural. I know we sort of make fun of them and think it's sort of silly that they would be talking about rank and who's greatest, but I think it came pretty natural to them. In fact, let me fill out some more blanks here so that we can sort of uh, commiserate with them or identify with them as, as people who live in a society, as people who live and maybe think some things about ourselves and assume some things about ourselves. First of all, we need to understand that Jewish religious culture of that day. It was a day in which you had to announce your spiritual, religious bona fides. And believe it or not, they didn't have the internet back then. There was no Twitter or Facebook. They couldn't brag about themselves or humble brag about themselves. They couldn't drop little subtle hints about what they've accomplished. They actually had to tell people. They actually had to just be upfront and announce what they'd done. In fact, uh, many of the Pharisees, Jesus accused many of the Pharisees, when they gave an offering, they would actually announce the amount that they were giving. They would say, this is the amount. And sometimes they would even have someone who would play a trumpet. They'd pull out, they had these little hand trumpets, and they would pull it out, make the, blow the trumpet, and they would say, I, Pharisee so-and-so, am dropping $50 into the offering. And believe it or not, the people that saw this happen, they wouldn't criticize or say, that guy's a hypocrite. Uh, mothers would lean to their boys and say, one day you'll be doing the same thing. But you'll be given $100 or $200. This was seen as a good thing. Th these are the religious people. These are the godly people. These are the moral people. And they would announce. They would announce when they would go on fasts. And not only would they announce it, they would portray that they were on a fast by looking all haggard and tired and hungry and walk around, I imagine, with their hand on their stomach as it growled, and they would wear sackcloth and put ashes on their head and look like they were fasting and make sure everybody knew. They would also pray out loud. You remember this from Matthew chapter 6 some years ago as we studied Matthew 6, and they would pray. They would find a, a very crowded corner, and they would pray these prayers full of repetition, and they would be loud. It would be something that everybody could see. And again, the people did not look at that negatively. The people would have said, this is what you have to do. This is what spiritual people do. They they pray loudly, they pray on the corners, they announce their offering, they announce their fasts. 
This is what religious spiritual people do. So this is the way the disciples grew up, competing with one another as as brothers, thinking about this kingdom in terms of rank, and living in this sort of prideful spiritual culture. It was very natural for them to discuss among themselves who would be greatest. In fact, as you read the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, what you find out is not only were they discussing these things, they were in a little bit of an argument about who, how, who had accomplished most and who would actually be greater than one another. And you see this in, in just about every human organization ever, right? There are people who feel like they ought to be in a certain level of greatness or position or rank or authority. And when they don't get that position, they feel a little slighted and they get frustrated and perhaps they think that the guy who has that job or girl who has that job, they don't really deserve it. What have they done? And so they argue among themselves. And this is what these guys were doing. They're discussing, they're arguing with one another about who should have rank and privilege as Jesus initiates his kingdom. And it may sound a little silly to us, but I think it's very natural to humans, natural to us, natural to them, especially in that context back then. Look it down there again, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They, they wanted Jesus to rank them. They wanted Jesus to identify who was going to be the highest, the, the general, and who was going to be the private among the disciples. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Like I said in Mark, it indicates that he, and he asked for this child. So this child probably isn't a 12-year-old standing there. It's probably a baby He's sitting on his mom's hip. And, and he asked for the child, probably an infant. In fact, uh, Luke tells of another story when Jesus asked for a child. Jesus did this on several occasions. And Luke tells of another occasion when he did this. And and Luke is very precise, being a doctor, he uses precise words, and, and in that passage, it says he asked for an infant, he asked for a baby, this would be someone like two and under. So we can imagine that's, that's exactly what was going on here, the word that, that Matthew uses is the generic word for child, but it's likely that Jesus did the same thing, he asked for a very young baby, a toddler perhaps, someone who was very young, and he took that baby, and he sat that baby, took him in his arms, and sat that baby ostensibly on his lap. And begins to teach them a lesson. Jesus wants them, subsequently us, to learn something. Something about ourselves. Something about the kingdom. Something about how we should relate to one another. Something about when we as Christians begin to populate this earth and and gather together in local groups, churches. And he says to them... To enter the kingdom, you must turn and enter as a child. What's that mean? Number one, it means to embrace the truth of human inability. Embrace the truth, or you could say doctrine, of human inability. Since the late 1500s, this doctrine has been called total depravity, but that sometimes is confusing because people think, Uh, Total depravity is a teaching that says everyone does everything wrong all the time and they can do nothing that is even remotely moral. And that's not what total depravity teaches. It teaches that humans are completely or totally unable to save themselves with righteous deeds. 
whatever righteousness that humans can produce is so tainted with sin, it gives them no merit in terms of eternal salvation. That's the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of human inability. Our fallenness, our sinfulness has affected us in such a way that if we're not a believer, if we've not truly repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ, if we've not done that, then whatever we do is, even if it's moral in terms of a human sense, even if it's valuable in terms of a human sense, many wicked people can do moral things, right? I mean, Hitler can do moral things. Epstein, Epstein can do, has done moral things. As horrible a person as these people are, they can do external moral things. But in the end, if you've not repented, the spirit is not motivating that morality and it merits you nothing in terms of glorifying God and saving your soul. They're completely unable with that morality to glorify God and save themselves. This is the doctrine of complete inability or human inability or total depravity. To enter the kingdom, a person must sincerely believe who they really are, what the Bible says about them, that they are completely unable to save themselves. They have no eternal credentials. They have no rank and privilege. They have nothing to hold in front of God and wave in front of Him as though God must now allow them into His kingdom. Now, to get this point across, Jesus takes this child and uses this child. And you have to understand a little bit about children there in the first century and what people would have thought about children, how they would have uh, perceived children. Children in that day were not romanticized pictures of innocence like they are today. It doesn't take very long for parents to stop believing that. You have a kid, you think that. It doesn't take very long, you realize this, is not, this kid is not innocent. Then children were not viewed as innocent at all, ever. They were useless to society. They were expendable. In fact, in the Jewish community, they, though they would have, uh, the boys in particular would have been circumcised and, and physically come into the covenant, they would have not been considered as fully a part of the covenant because they could not contribute, contribute anything. They were seen as rebellious, causing problems. They were a headache. Children were perceived as incapable in terms of contributing to society. This is an agrarian society. A child has no skills. A child has no strength. A child can do nothing to contribute to society, and, and for them to survive, I mean, they were, they were working hard. It's hard for us to imagine, but for most of human history, people had to do everything they could just to live. They spent every waking hour working as hard as they could on, on just getting enough food to survive. There's no different from back then. They would have, unless you were extremely wealthy, you would have been spending every waking hour in this agrarian society trying to make ends meet, trying to, to make just enough so where you could survive, and, and children did not lend a hand especially small children like this young baby in Jesus' lap. Children were also seen as expendable. They were a vapor because so many of them died. Some of the commentators pointed out, and I don't know how uh, they measure these kind of things, but they pointed out that back then more than half babies died before they became adults. Again, this is something true throughout history. Parents would not be would purposefully stay uh, away emotionally from their children, though they couldn't do that entirely. Everyone always has a, a draw toward their children, but they did the best they could to stay and stand at a distance emotionally from their children. They didn't want to get attached. This child, this child could die. The first 12 years are, are precarious years. They could get sick very easily and just die. They were seen as expendable. In fact, 
They were so expendable that oftentimes, especially during the Roman era in which all these people lived, infanticide was actually quite popular. Not as popular as it, as it is today because of abortion, but it was very popular. If the baby came out and the dad, the father, did not like the gender of the baby or there was some sort of deformity or some sort of sickness, he could just command and the baby would be murdered. This is what children were viewed as back then. And so children were relegated to menial and oftentimes filthy tasks like washing feet, cleaning dishes, dealing with garbage and sewage, staying out of the way of the adults, being seen and not heard, and oftentimes not even being seen. Children lacked all abilities, they lacked all credentials, there was nothing that they could say on terms, in terms of their social stratus, they, uh, status. They could not say that I, I, I occupy some place in society. They had no place in society. So when Jesus says, receive the kingdom of God like a child, or here in Matthew, unless you turn, and the word there is convert. You could say even repent. Why is that? Because most of us, assume the best about ourselves, right? And most of us think we got some things going on that God will look at and, and get us to hell. I mean, I, I've witnessed a lot of people, and they almost always begin to, to give me all the things, all their credentials as to why they're going to get into heaven. And so Jesus says, you got to turn away from that thinking and become like a child. It means you're to enter the kingdom beginning with this knowledge that you are helpless and hopeless. You have no credentials you have done nothing that is meritorious to, to gain the kingdom, to gain heaven whatsoever. You come to God acknowledging that you have no standing with him or anyone else. You have no credentials. Again, I've witnessed to a lot of people, and I've hardly ever witnessed to somebody where they don't begin to give me a list of their credentials. I pray all the time. My uncle's a pastor. I'm very interested in God. I've read the Bible. I've always believed I'm a member of a church. I was baptized. I give money. I, 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 me, me, me. That's how they think they're getting to the kingdom. By their credentials, by what they've accomplished. Jesus said, you've got to turn away from that thinking and enter as a child. You know, that's the basis of every false religion. Every false religion, even religions that masquerade as Christianity, that's the basis. You do this, you do this, you do this, and God's just going to give you salvation. He'll grant you the kingdom if, if you just sort of work hard and do what you're going to do. God's going to bless you with the kingdom. Performance-based religion. It's all about your accomplishments, your abilities, your status. And Jesus says you have to recognize the doctrine of human inability. You have no status. You have no credentials. And that's how you enter the kingdom. Just like this baby. This baby knows that it has nothing. It is totally dependent on someone else for his existence. Somewhere in the history of Christianity, there arose the false idea that genuine Christianity is mindless. In fact, it began with those outside of Christianity as, as you sort of turn toward the modern era, and they began to attack the Christian faith as, as being mindless and stupid. And some Christian philosophers, quote-unquote Christian philosophers, came along, Kierkegaard and Kant, to name a couple, came along and said, yeah, we, we're going to give you that. We, we acknowledge in order to become a Christian, you have to suspend rationale, you have to suspend logic, you have to take a blind leap of faith. They separated 
reason, and faith. Sadly, many Christians still do that today, right? Faith for them is mindlessness. It's stupidity. Reason is almost the opposite of faith, they say. Now, that's not to say that uh, we don't have to trust God or we, we don't acknowledge the fact that he is infinite and we are finite and we can't understand everything and we have to trust him. But the fact of the matter is, Christians throughout the centuries, sadly, since this era, Christians throughout the centuries have separated faith and reason. The reason I bring this up is because a verse that the anti-intelligence Christians go to the most to defend this idea is this very passage. They say something like this. Jesus said, we ought to have a childlike faith. And for them, that means you should be always simple, no desire to grow intellectually, No desire to mature in your mind. No real desire to worship God with your mind. Just be as simple as you can be as a Christian. And this actually took off. This this movement is still alive and well today. This anti-intellectualism, even among many Christians, and they think that the the essence of faith is is abandoning reason, is abandoning intellect. And they they, they point to the academia. They point to all the folks who reject Christ in academia today. See, See, this is what happens if you start to think too much. My faith is a blind faith, they say. And they look to passages just like this to justify it. Well, first of all, Jesus actually never said it that way. He never said you have to have a childlike faith. You realize that. We just read the passage. He didn't say have a childlike faith. Second, there's nothing in this passage that instructs us to have a faith that's devoid of reason, thought, depth. To have a faith that's devoid of logic. There's nothing here that says entering as a child means taking a blind leap. Again, faith does include accepting truth that God knows more than you do and and acknowledging your mind is finite and limited. But having faith in Christ, folks, is indeed the smartest thing that a person can do. It's the most reasonable thing that a person can do. It's the most rational, the most reasonable. If you do some study, you'll find out it, it, it coincides best with logic and science and reality to have faith in Christ. And what Jesus means here is not be dumb, be blind, don't study, don't get deep into theology, don't get too deep, just keep it always shallow. Be like a toddler in terms of your mental understanding of Christ. He's not saying that. What he's saying is be humble like a child. Accept the fact that you have no accomplishments, you have no credentials. That's how you enter the kingdom. He's saying nothing about pursuing God with your minds. He's talking about how you enter the kingdom in terms of acknowledging the fact that you have no credentials, no accomplishments. That's what it means to enter as a child. Now, that characteristic of humility is not just for entrance into the kingdom, the rest of the chapter and even the next few verses explain to us that this is the defining trait that all Christians should carry with them, this kind of humility. So this becomes the foundation of our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. The rest of this chapter, again, is a description of how we relate with one another and how we do so in a humble way. These men were bickering and arguing, and Jesus goes straight to their problem. Your problem is pride. You need to turn away from that pride. 
and take on a humility, humility even as a child. Humility, by the way, solves about 90% of your relational problems. If someone among those fighting would just have some humility. Someone told me this week, humility opened, opens doors of opportunity. So look there at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Number two, being childlike also means to embody the truth of kingdom humility. To embody the truth of kingdom humility. It's not just momentary for the purpose of salvation. All right, I'm done with humility. I got in. I became like a child. Now I can go back to my prideful ways. No, this becomes the very definition and shape of you and your relationships with God and with others, particularly in your church. And, and I just want to make, you, make sure you know, Jesus is not encouraging some sort of ulterior motive. He's not saying, hey, you want to be greatest? Uh, show humility. Because that wouldn't be real humility. That would be hypocrisy, right? Pretend you're humble and you'll be greatest. He, he's not encouraging ulterior motives here. What he's saying is, is the kingdom is upside down from what the world is. The greatest in the kingdom are not those who think the highest about themselves. It are those who think the highest of others. It's the opposite of the world. The world says, assert yourself, build a solid resume, brag a little, focus on self-esteem, focus on self-assertion, focus on pride. I say to you, focus on self-denial. Put yourself at the lowest seat. Serve others. Prefer others as more important than yourself. I understand we live in a world and we have to write resumes and do things sometimes in, in the world that uh, is sort of self-promoting. But for one, doesn't mean you can't show humility even in the workplace. And two, Jesus is talking primarily about life in the kingdom, life among Christians, life in the church. And here, more than anywhere else, humility is the greatest quality of a Christian. What Jesus is getting at, and I think... It'd be good to write this down, write some of these things down. What Jesus is getting at is we need to identify pride and pursue humility. Let me give you a few tips here. I wrote this down from some other authors. One thing, pride is assuming you know better than others. If, if you just have that idea, I know better than others, if you just carry that with you, you're going to be a prideful person. Now, that doesn't mean you can't say, well, I, I might know some, something better than others. I've been to seminary. I, I might know, but to have that attitude, I just know better than others. That destroys relationships. A child, especially a small child like the one Jesus is holding, does not assume he knows better than anyone. He might, but maybe not. He may could learn some things. He doesn't walk into situations assuming that he knows better than the other people there. He walks in with a level of humility. About 20, 25 years ago or so, I was planning a church in Indianapolis. I was young in seminary, and uh, there was a billboard in Indy for a local news station. It said, you'll know so much, you'll feel like you're 16 again. You remember when you were 16? Some of you, it was a little harder to go back that far. You thought you knew everything. Your siblings, and especially your parents, they're idiots. They don't know anything. I mean, they're fool. You know everything. A mature person realizes they know very little. They don't just barrel in every situation assuming they know better than others. 
this child, this infant or toddler does not assume that he knows better than anybody. He, he, in every situation, he assumes that maybe someone has knowledge that he does not have. It's interesting, even when you feel like you have the facts, how many times have you been proven wrong? You come barreling in, and you're angry, and you're frustrated, and then suddenly you're humiliated because you didn't know anything about what was going on. Why not just start with humility? Why not just start saying, you know, I, I, I may be completely confused here. Help me understand. Start with humility instead of this attitude that thinks you know everything. I've been around church a long time, and sometimes, not sometimes, at every church I've been in, there are people who are profoundly gifted, but they live on the sideline because they're prideful, they're arrogant. And the pastors just wag their heads, wishing that somehow that person would find some humility and be able to incorporate their gifts in the church. But everywhere they go, they just corrupt relationships, they cause problems, they cause strife because they just know everything. And it ruins the relationship in the church. Sometimes it's even the pastor. Do you know that? Sometimes it's the wise people of the church, the humble people of the church that are looking at the pastor and wagging their heads. You're like, amen, Pastor John. Look at the pastors and say, look at that guy. He thinks he knows everything. What else? Pride is tactless and insensitive. Someone with pride takes little time to consider others, their experience, their knowledge, their feelings. Humility, again, like a child, assumes the best of others. It gives people the benefit of doubt. It, it holds an implicit trust of others. That's what children do. Children make friends with everyone. It's not till older, when they get older, teenage years, and the drama starts to happen. The little kids just assume the best about everybody. They assume they can be friends with anybody. They give everyone love. They assume the best about everyone. Is that you? Or are you tactless? Are you insensitive? Do you think about others? Do you think about their feelings, their experience? Do you consider their own hearts? Search your heart for that pride. Replace it with childlike humility. Third, Pride takes a default position of independence. A prideful person feels that he needs nobody else. Any teaching or knowledge that comes his way, he just sees it as either confirmation of what he already knows, or maybe it's something, no, I disagree with that. I've known people like that, haven't you? They never learn anything. They stand on their own as the arbiter of right and wrong, of truth and falsehood. They already know everything. They think they've got it all put together, and any time that truth comes to them, they either say, well, this just affirms everything I already know, or they say, well, I disagree with that point. A prideful person stands alone in his mind as being self-sufficient. He stands independent of others. He separates himself from all reason that others could provide. In fact, that's the way that the Bible, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, describes a fool. He separates himself from others. That's why I believe those who are believers, who consider themselves believers and refuse to be a part of a church, are ultimately fools. They're prideful. It has nothing to do with any kind of issue they had or any kind of thing that they had. They just refuse to go to church because they're, in the, in the end, are prideful. They think they can do it on, the, on, the, on their own. They don't need anybody. They don't need teaching. I'm speaking to a gentleman the other day. I bumped into him. He was a member of another church here on the island. 
and uh, he was real close to a buddy of mine who was a pastor, and I knew that my friend, my pastor buddy, for a long time really depended on this guy. This guy was a teacher, a preacher, and involved himself in a lot of the ministry of the church, and I, I asked this guy, oh, you still go to uh, so-and-so's church? And he said, no, I don't really go to church anymore. That kind of surprised me because I knew how he was so involved. And I said, well, are you still a believer? Oh, yeah, I'm a believer. I said, well, what, what do you read Christian books? What do you do as far as your, your spiritual life? He said, oh, no, I don't, I don't read Christian books. I, I find that when I read Christian books, I disagree with everything in them. And I said, well, that's, this is why you're not part of a church. You think you're so smart, you, you're so prideful, you can just sort of be independent of the church. People can actually be members of a church and be sort of like that. They sort of stand askance from the church and sort of attend here and there because they think they just know better. Well, are there other evidence of pride? Of course, you can probably come up with other evidences, but perhaps even from your own life. I know I can. Jesus is saying to his men, you've got to have this humility. What you're displaying here in, in your discussion of greatness, it may be consistent with what you grew up learning. It may be consistent with being brothers and being competitive with one another. Maybe the normal thought when it comes to rank and file, maybe, maybe that's something that's completely normal, but it's not normal in terms of the kingdom. You've got to embrace the humility of a child. Pride is what destroys your relationship with others. Pride is what bars people from the kingdom. And so Jesus, Jesus says, you must be humble like this child. We're going to take the Lord's table here in a moment. Part of the reason Jesus instituted the communion is the fact that we all as Christians live under this humble acknowledgement. It is not by our achievements that we have communion with God. It is by the broken body and the blood of Christ. It is not by my achievement that I have fellowship, intimate fellowship with this body of believers. It is because God has brought us together, separated the wall and brought us together because of the blood of Christ. That's why Paul would say in Corinthians, he, he ties the, the, the action of communion, not just to communion with, uh, of the Christian with God, but communion among the people of God. He says, if you don't have this fellowship, if you don't have that, if there's broken or severed ties, you go get those things right, or else you drink damnation to yourself. You settle these things. You, it would be hypocritical for you to take the Lord's table and say, I'm in communion with everyone, if you have been prideful and separated yourself with people. An important reminder, even as we come today, we check our attitudes, we check our hearts. If we've not resolved issues in fellowship in terms of communion, we don't want to drink or eat as a hypocrite. And all of this hinges on the humility that is distinctive and distinguishing, or should be distinguishing, of every Christian. Let's pray that we do this. Father, we thank you for this wonderful message. We thank you for the truth of uh, this message that Jesus preached there to his men, taught them the humility of a child. Lord, I do pray for those who may not know you. I pray that they see the kingdom of God. They see the truth of Jesus' kingdom. They believe it. They believe that it's real. It's true. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would grant them repentance, give them a desire to look to Christ alone, not to their accomplishments, not to their own heart, but to look to Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation. I pray that they would indeed turn and be converted.
away from self-righteousness and toward trust in Jesus Christ. Help them come into the kingdom as a child. And all of us, Lord, we want to reside here as children, as fellow children who are humble, who are kind, who are pliable, who are not prideful. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in pride. It is so easy to, to, to think of ourselves as higher than one another. And, and, and we sometimes mock these disciples that we confess we do the same thing. Lord, forgive us for this and help us to live as humble servants of you and of one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.